0: You are listening to Graceway's weekly message podcast. We hope that this message encourages you to know and enjoy God, find friends, discover your purpose, and make a difference in your community. Enjoy the message. And why are we talking about forgiveness? Well, we're talking about forgiveness because I, I really think it's the area that so many of us are stuck. Uh, lots of people talking about where our culture is, we're divided, we're broken, we're not unified. Lots of ideas around it. God's idea toward unity, toward reconciliation is forgiveness. And a lot of us don't know how to do it, so my aim in this series is very simple. I want you to understand that you are forgiven so that you can be forgiving. I want you to understand that you are forgiven so that you can be forgiven. Forgiving. The, the foundation of your practice of forgiving is tied to your position of having been forgiven in the Bible. The the, those two concepts, the practice of forgiving and your position of being forgiven, are almost hand in glove in the Bible. It's why last week we started with the idea that your forgiveness has to be managed vertically before it can be managed horizontally. You got to do business with God before you do business with the person who offended you. You have to understand that this is an act of worship, that this is an act of humility, that this is an act of submission, that this is you saying to God. God, even if I don't feel it, God, I want to have faith, and I want to obey you, and I want to go first. Why? Because you went first with me. Because you went first with me. Because I'm walking around as a forgiven human being, and in your grace, I'm going to be a forgiving human human being. So last week, I talked to you about uh, going rock climbing, right? Don't like people touching our stuff. That same area of West Virginia, New River Gorge, we would also... From time to time, go white water rafting. Anyone ever been white water rafting? OK? Uh, so whitewater rafting is, is great. Only like five of us have ever been. Come on, Missouri people, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? All right? Uh, I'm hanging out at the lake, OK? All right, fair enough. Uh, so in New River Gorge, there's a significant amount of, of large rapids. So rapids work. Uh, category one to five. Category six is a rapid that nobody has ever survived, OK? And so literally Niagara Falls is a Category 5 rapid because people, for some reason, got into a barrel and rolled over the edge, okay? Uh, and so we would go down, lots of, lots of big rapids, had a, had a great time doing it. And then in between these big rapids, kind of take a deep breath, and the, the guide is like, all right, y- y'all can get out of the boat, and you kind of flop out of the boat. And sometimes you kind of get into this pool and you're just kind of floating along. It's really relaxing and beautiful. Uh, other times you'll catch this current, and it'll like shoot you down down the river. You know what I'm saying? Um, you you get in those currents, and there's really nothing that you can do about it. You don't you don't swim out of it. You're not like, oh, I don't I don't want to be here. You you have to you have to have somebody grab you out of the current, and then you really, if you're going to manage the currents well, you have to kind of get out of the river and look and go, oh, uh, okay, I don't want to go over here. I don't I don't want to go over there. If I go over there, I'm gonna end up down down there in the river. I, you, you, gotta, you have to know where the currents are, otherwise you're going to kind of involuntarily and without much thinking or management get swept to a different place. Are you tracking with me? Okay, so listen to what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2. You used to be dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons. Of disobedience here's what God says you are surrounded by currents courses ideas philosophies behaviors theologies and if you're not mindful you're gonna get swept to a place that you didn't intend to get swept to just by nature of the fact that you weren't paying attention to where the water was leading you so to speak and so today what I want to do is I want to get out of the river I want to look at how does our culture think about forgiveness? How does our culture think about empathy? How does our culture think about reconciliation and trust? And I need you to understand that all of these big ideas that are in the Bible have a, uh, an opposite but as prevalent course and current in the world. There's a way that God does it. There's a way that the enemy does it. And I really think that most of us end up places that we don't intend to be Not because we don't love Jesus, uh, but because we're just getting swept up by ideas on, frankly, the news or social media or the conversations that we're having. We're just like, yeah, that doesn't sound wrong, but there's things underneath it that take us to a place, and we're just not getting out of the flow long enough to look at it and say, is this the right current course, path, direction that I want to be going when it comes to these things that make me who I am? Am I Am I, am I more American than I am more biblical? Come on, somebody, okay? okay? So Romans chapter 12 says, hey, don't be conformed to this world. Renew your mind. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't do it the way that the world does. How, how do I, okay, God, how do I not do it the way that the world does it? Think about what you think about. Think about what you think about. And if you're thinking like the world, you're going to be acting like the world. It's going to be taking you a place that the world wants you to go. But if you'll change your mind to think like God thinks, have the mind of Christ, then you're going to be able to manage these things in different ways. So I want, to, I want to tell you a story today. It's our story. It's our story of our relationship to forgiveness. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 says, What has been will be, and what will be has already been done. There's nothing new under the sun. So in culture and in currents, People before us have believed the way that we believe, acted the way we act, and we can look at it and say, is that, is that God's way for us? So let me just say, this is going to be of the five or six things we're going to talk about when it comes to forgiveness, this is the one I'm going to need you to, to work in your mind, okay? I, I'm going to push you a little bit because I want you to think about what you believe about these things, and I want you to think about whether or not your thinking is biblical. Are you with me? Why is forgiveness so central for Christians? And how do we as Christians tend to think about forgiveness? Okay, so let's talk first about our history of forgiveness. Um, So like that river that I would hop into, that current that I would end up in, I wasn't at the beginning of the river. There There was something that had happened before me that dictated those currents. So our human story, our human history, and our thinking that goes along with it typically has been handed down to us i know your mama told you you were special and original and all those kind of things i love you so much you're awesome but you ain't original okay you think what you think because of where you grew up and who you grew up with and the socioeconomic and the things you were taught biblical or otherwise you are a product of your environment and so is the church if we're not mindful so the modern concept of forgiveness this is david constant a historian The modern concept of forgiveness, how we think about it, in the full or rich sense of the term, listen, did not exist in classical antiquity. That is, in Greece or in Rome, the chief influences of Western civilization, it played, listen to this phrase, no role whatsoever in the ethical thinking of those societies. Forgiveness played no role whatsoever in the ethical thinking of the societies that gave us Western civilization of which you are sitting in right now. Charles Griswold said, It is surprising and illuminating that forgiveness was not seen as a virtue by the ancient Greek philosophers. You don't have to look any further than the gods that are represented in Greek mythology or Roman mythology. When you read about them, they are presented... In human terms, with human attributes, some good, a lot not so good. Greek gods are jealous, they're spiteful, they're vengeful, they're angry. They're not about forgiveness. Just read them. The most famous Greek myth, Homer's Iliad, is largely a story about the pursuit of blood justice and vengeance. Now, the cardinal virtues of, of, of this society were wisdom, justice courage and self-control. You say, "That that doesn't sound so bad, right? Well, the Greeks had words for pity and lenience. When they would think about things like what we would call forgiveness, their words for forgiveness that they used most often were pity and lenience. The Bible word, the phrase meant to legally acquit or to cancel a debt, think about the comparison of those things to I acquit you, I cancel your debt, or I pity you. You see the difference? So in the Bible, uh, the prefix on the Greek word for forgiveness, it meant to put distance between. It meant forgiveness is to put distance between your offense and your penalty, in between Me and your offense. Remember when the Bible says that God has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. That's the word. Forgiveness is not to pity somebody. Forgiveness is not to be lenient on somebody. Forgiveness is to acquit them, to cancel a debt, to take their offense and separate it from them and you from it. That's the biblical world. And it's not used in Greek culture. There's almost no cultural, ethical impact of that Greek word on Greek practice or mindset. The Greek culture on which our culture sits was built largely on philosophy, largely from three individuals. If you paid attention to school, which not many of us did, their names are Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And they kind of built on top of one another. Socrates came first, then his student was Plato, and Plato had a student, his name was Aristotle. And Aristotle had verbiage for this word, a pardon, but whenever he talked about a pardon, it was only when someone does a wrong action because of an overstrained human nature. Now think about that. When you just found yourself in a spot where you were just a little too human, I guess we can pardon you. We can pity you. We can show lenience to you. Not forgiveness. Not forgiveness. I'll make an allowance for you. Rather than saying, I forgive you, I say, I understand you're just human. You couldn't have done better, which leads more toward pity and lenience than it does toward forgiveness. Now, why? Why was this the posture and the position of the Greeks and then the Romans, and I'm going to try to convince you ultimately of us. One was because of the way that they viewed the universe. They viewed the universe as impersonal and therefore unknowable. Now think about that just in terms of how we think about how the universe exists and our ability to know who created it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is a direct contradiction to the Greek philosophy that the universe is unknowable, and impersonal. We say, no, no, the creator of the universe is knowable and is a person. His name is God. So they believed that the universe was impersonal and therefore unknowable and that it was logical and therefore immovable. So common people called the way that the universe worked, they called it fate. And they would say things just like, it just is the way that it is, man. just the way the universe works. You wake up in the morning and the rules are in place and you just have to figure out a way to live. Now philosophers use a different word than fate. They called the universe, think about this, the Logos. When you read John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Logos, John is making a direct contradiction to Greek, Roman, Western philosophy. They believed that the universe worked according to unforgiving principles and that the gods who controlled those principles and that universe were equally unforgiving. So the idea was you need to learn the rules. You need to play the game. There's no new mercy in the morning. There's no grace. There's no help coming. If you don't look out for you, nobody else is going to look out for you. I don't have time to forgive you. I might pity you but I need to get mine. Are you with me? So their view of the universe. Next was their definition of virtue. Now when I say the word virtue, you have an idea that comes into your mind that's very different from the idea that would have come into the Greeks' philosophic mind. Virtue was not about character for the the Greeks. It was about excellence. You played your part in this unforgiving universe correctly, And the better you played your part, the more virtue you had. Now, why is that problematic? Because there's a bit of a hubris to this virtue. You're just doing what you need to do to play your part, which means the ends justify the means. I did what I needed to do. If it went well, I was right. And if I'm right, it's because I'm virtuous. This made virtue self-defined. I won. You lost, you're wrong, I'm right, and it made it self-serving. Because all I needed to do, because the ends justify the means, just make sure that I step on Craig's neck, and then I'm right, and you lose. That's virtue in the Greek context. Now, think of this. It, this means if, if it goes well with you, it's because you're, because you're good, So think of how that plays out. It means that if you're wealthy, you're good. If you're powerful, you're good. If you're influential, you're virtuous. This means that might makes right. Might makes right. The virtuous person, therefore, would not find themselves in need of forgiveness because they were right. Why? Well, because look at me. Because look at what I have. Because look at who I am. Because look at what I've accomplished. How, how, how are you going to come to me, and especially if you're not equal to me, and ask forgiveness from me? How, how are you going to come to me and tell me that I did something wrong when my bank account is this and your bank account is that? So forgiveness wasn't about humility. Forgiveness was about hierarchy. In the Greek structure. Failure did not invite forgiveness and invited contempt. Not of the behavior, but of the person. So I'll go back to Craig again. Craig comes to me and says, bro, and I'm sorry that you, uh, uh, that, that you feel the way you did, but the thing that you did hurt my feelings. And I would say something like this. Craig, I'm the pastor of this church, man. How are you going to come to me and ask me and tell me that I didn't do... Like, If I didn't do it right, then why am I the pastor and you're sitting there? And it's not that you couldn't have been the pastor, but you didn't do what I did. You don't know what I know. You don't have what I have. You aren't who I am. You hear how gross this sounds? God forgive me, just an illustration. So how are you going to come to me with where you are in the pecking order and tell me that I need to forgive you? No, you need to be thankful that I'm giving you the time to tell me, that you're offended by me, but it doesn't bother me because you're you and, well, I'm, I'm me. The virtuous were perfectionistic and moralistic. They were immune from receiving or doing injury, no matter what you think. No matter what you think, I'm immune from receiving injury and whatever I do to you, let's just assume that there's a better reason than you can understand. At the center of virtue was justice, excellence, and what? Self. At the center of virtue in the Greek context was power and hierarchy and self. Okay, so let's talk about our current forgiveness culture. Are you still with me? Okay, so you take a history without forgiveness, centered on self, and driven for power to make oneself immune from offense or offending. That that's the river that we're swimming in right now. And you add to it too much information. <laughs> Y'all say, Why are you always talking about social media? Tired of hearing about you talking about social media. Because it's doing something to us. It's giving you more information on top of the foundation that you already received. And with that foundation, more information means more offense. You ever thought about this? The things that you wouldn't have even known before, that now you're being kept up at night because you're so angry about. So the culture we receive is a history without forgiveness, centered on self, driven for power. You add to it information and offense while maintaining the exact same drive, which is this. I'm trying to get to a spot Where I am safe from all contradiction, criticism. I'm trying to get to a spot where I I got enough power. It doesn't matter what you think about me. You know, there's a fine line between weird and eccentric. What's the line? Cash. Am I lying? Broke folks, you're a weirdo. Rich folks, oh, he's so eccentric. There's a fine line. There's a fine line between, uh, between you know, being in, in a spot where you can be criticized and, and, and just, just being wrong, right? It, it's, and it's getting worse, y'all. It, it, it's getting worse. I hope that you see it. The, the powerful folks ain't even trying to tell the truth anymore. Why? Because why? We got a cat right now in public office, who got there by lying. You, you look at people, and we say things like, they're not a good person, they don't tell the truth, they're immoral in every way, but they did this thing, so I guess it's good. No, what, what? No, what are you saying? They got a lot of money, they got a lot of power, and, and who am I to question? Where'd you get that? You got that from the Greeks. That's where you got it. You got it from the Greeks. We are living in the same world. Now, let's talk about therapy in the world today. In the West, here, we have really taken this strong turn inward and toward individualism. We look to ourselves to forge our identity. What do I want to be when I grow up? And we, we do this, right? We, we say this to you. You can be anything you want to be when you grow up. Baby, what do you want to be? Now... It's a beautiful idea. <laughs> it's a beautiful idea. It just ignores several realities. And so we teach kids from a very early age, you can be whoever you want to be. You can have whatever you want to have. You can do whatever you want to do until they grow up and say, well, I don't want to be who I am. I want to be something else. And then you go to, go to therapy, and the protection and the wisdom isn't toward you Holistically living in truth, the protection is you are who you are and we need to defend you from any outside demands or perspectives that would detract from who you say that you are. Modern therapy is designed to protect and to create walls against outside influence or pressure, especially when those outside influences or pressure create what you feel is discomfort, shame or anxiety. There is a deconstruction of the old for the benefit of the individual self. You're right. They, whoever they are, which is anyone not named you, need to be quiet, need to be stopped, need to have somebody put them in their place. So there's this therapeutic culture that's on top of the culture that we receive, that's really the exact same culture. And there's this new um, shame-honor culture. Now, if you're not familiar with that idea, um, missiologists have for lots of years really divided the world into three worldviews. The, the first is a guilt-innocence worldview. And, and really, that's the one that we talk about here, like right and wrong. In, in America, we, we say... That's not, that's not right for you to do that. They don't talk that way in other places. I hope that, you, hope that you know. That's wrong. That's right. That's good. That's bad. Right? Cowboys wear white hats and bad guys wear... Are you with me? Okay. The second is fear power. It's a different, it's a different worldview than guilt innocence. It's, it's you want to get power so that other people are afraid of you. Have you ever watched the news and watched a politician in another part of the world say, if you do that, I'm going to hit the button so many times, it's going to obliterate all of you from the face of the earth. And we say, that's so evil. No, he's from a different culture. He's, He's flexing so that you'll do what he says. You say, that doesn't make it right. That's not the frame he's thinking about it in. He's not thinking about that. He's just trying to exert power so that others will be afraid and in their fear they'll do what he wants and not do what he doesn't want them to do. The third is called shame honor. And shame honor is the frame that the Bible is written in. When you go to the Middle East, it's about uh, dignity. It's about uh, patriarchy. It's about hierarchy. It's about doing the right thing. Not for you, for your name and for your family. That's what Luke 15 is about. This young man shames his father. And then this father shames himself by running. Are you with me? Now the more integrated and diverse we, and by we I mean the United States, become, we have all three in the United States. And I'll I'll just say to you that part of the reason that we're so divided right now is outside influences and the fact that we have people looking at the exact same thing through different sets of glasses and instead of listening, we say, I'm right and you're wrong. And it's not that they're right and you're wrong. It's that they're different and we need to learn. It's that we need to learn how to forgive so that we have ourselves in a posture where we're able to listen. And once we listen, we learn. And then learning and listening comes growth and unity. So guilt, innocence, fear, power, shame, honor, but we're developing what some sociologists call a dignity culture, a dignity culture. And in this culture, it is the demand for respect and affirmation of our identity and an encouragement to respond with outrage at the slightest offense. Does this sound familiar? Like a shame honor culture, there is an expectation to respond to offense. You regain your honor by responding in kind or greater to the offense and the offender. Today, outrage becomes the expected means of regaining your dignity. If there is no outrage, the louder the better, you simply don't care enough about yourself. You need to love yourself, believe in yourself, stand up for yourself in the way that you do that as if he offends me. I smash him as loudly and publicly as possible so that people know I mean it. It's important. I'm important. He's coming against, not what I believe, who I am. And I'm not going to let him do it. And if you don't respond in this way, others will offer their outrage at your lack of outrage. (laughs) Forgiveness, then, is just impractical, if not unjust. Because what forgiveness does is it short circuits the ability of the victim to regain their dignity. Now, where'd this come from? It it came from way down the river, y'all. And now we're swimming in it, saying, look how unique we are. When the Bible says, (laughs) we've been doing this for a long time. We've been doing this for a long time. By the way, two just side points, just if you want to think about this a little bit further. The framework that this happens in predominantly is politics. And I don't mean from a political standpoint, I mean from a sociological standpoint. Politics is the new religion. Those who disagree with your politics aren't mistaken, they're evil. And if you don't smash them as loudly and publicly as possible, you must be a fill-in-the-blanks-in-name-only. In 18, or, uh, 1989, a British missiologist by the name of Leslie Newbigin wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. In other words, the gospel in a society that isn't Judeo-Christian at its foundation and practice. In which he said, as the West moved to a post-Christian place, it would not become more secular. It would become more political. Think about this. Christians who are becoming less biblically literate but more politically involved. And here's what happens. Here's what happens. We're talking about theology and Bible and God and you and people hear it as politics. No, no, I'm, not, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the Bible. I'm talking about theology. Well, it sounds political to me. Well, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> this is the conversation, if I'm going to be honest with you, that I have almost weekly. You said blah, 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 and politically, hey, 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 I don't care about politics. I'm talking to you about the Bible. Well, in a political context, hey, blah, 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 I don't care. That ain't my guy. That ain't my team. That ain't my thing. This ain't my kingdom. This ain't my home. I'm not talking about that. But watch. When the new religion becomes politics, everything gets politicized. That's where we are, friends. Now, these currents have given us three models of forgiveness. Okay, fine. We'll give you a little bit of forgiveness. Here's three ways that we can do it. The first is called cheap grace, and this comes from Tim Keller. Cheap grace... In this, the emphasis is put on the victim being liberated from the effects of the perpetrator. Confrontation might be involved, but only if it helps the victim's process. So the Bible says, if a brother offends you, stop your prayer and go reconcile to your brother. This says, only go talk to him if it's going to help you. If it's going to help you feel better, if it's going to help you feel more comfort, more peace, if it's going to help you feel more free, then yeah, do it. But it's really just... It's really just about you. It's it's cheap grace. The second is little grace. In this, the emphasis is put on the perpetrator earning forgiveness. The victim gives up anger only if the wrongdoer earns it through repentance and reparation. Yeah, yeah, I'm open to reconciliation if you... Whatever, fill fill in the blank. And the third is no grace in which forgiveness is abandoned as a value at all because it contradicts justice. I'm not trying to forgive you. I'm trying to have you get what you deserve as I see it. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness. And listen, you you see this in culture today, right? You see culture talking about forgiveness being self-love. You see... Forgiveness being talked about as something that can only occur as long as, and you see people who are saying forgiveness is getting in the way, it's getting in the way of the justice that we require, it's getting in the way of our identity, it's getting in the way of our progress, it's getting in the way. You Christians are trying to take us back to a time and a place where we didn't understand what we understood, and you're wanting us to sweep under the rug these things in the name of biblical forgiveness. Listen, there's almost nothing in our history or our culture that gives any philosophy, ideology, cultural distinctive, directive, or valuation toward forgiveness. That's the river you're swimming in. Christian, that's the river that you're swimming in. maybe, Maybe you couldn't name it, but you can certainly feel it, can't you? So Let's, let's talk about what forgiveness is. Why, why, why is this the spot that the course of this world, which is driven by the God of this world, by the way, who's, who aims to steal, kill, and destroy, why have we come to this place? And it's a very simple answer. Are you ready? Because there's never been anyone like Jesus. <laughs> Listen to this quote by Hannah Arendt the discovery of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. How do we get here? We, we got here because there'd never been anyone like Jesus. And because forgiveness exists sociologically, philosophically, and historically, not because somebody came to it. No, it doesn't exist because that's what we came to. It does exist As a concept, costly grace, that's the fourth option. Why does costly grace exist in our philosophic mind? Because Jesus is who he says that he was. Now watch, throughout the Old Testament, we see God making a covenant with the people of Israel. Him keeping his word and them breaking theirs repeatedly. (laughs) Them dealing with the consequences of their defiance and rebellion, them saying they're sorry, him forgiving them, it going well for a a period of time, and then then them doing it again, and the whole doom loop repeating itself. The Old Testament ends with Israel under judgment, living in their realities of their own making and choosing. God has been sidelined and silenced, so he does the obvious thing he sends himself. Just Think of that. What do you do whenever you've been sidelined and silenced, betrayed repeatedly in the same doom loop? What do you do? Do you get as close as you can to the person? As vulnerably as you can to the person? As disadvantaged as you can to the person? That's what God does in the Gospels. He gets as near To his offenders as possible in the most disadvantaged way. He's God, right? This is why it's so crazy that God doesn't show up in a cut off t shirt, tatted up, huge biceps, headband on. You wanna fight? He shows up as a nobody. He shows up anonymously. He's born in a barn to a teenager with no affluence, no power, no influence, nothing hierarchically to speak of so that he can be as near as possible to his offenders. Right away, we're talking about, we're not even talking about apples and oranges, we're talking about apples and something you've never heard of. What is wild about Jesus is that he becomes a man, He moves into the neighborhood of humanity knowing the track record of the Hebrews and knowing that it was not going to get better, it was going to get more broken at a deeper and more personal level. Listen, there's one thing of being God and offended in heaven. (laughs) Hey, Gabriel, can you pass me some grapes? It's been a rough day. It's an entirely different thing to put on flesh, to become a servant, to live the way that Jesus lived, knowing that he was putting himself in the t bonable intersection of the brokenness of humanity. Most of us, listen, we do not choose our offense or our offender. The blindsiding and involuntary nature of it is what makes it feel so violent and unjust. You, you're the one to do this to me. You, you're the one to say this to me. You're the one to betray me. You're the one to lie about me. You're the one to gossip about me. I would have never seen it coming from you. But this wasn't the case for Jesus. Jesus knew exactly who and how and when and how much and to what of his own detriment. Detriment. He came knowing that his own would not receive him. He came knowing that the Israelites would do what they had been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus came knowing that his family would reject him until after his death. They would say that he was crazy, and they would make fun of him. Jesus came knowing that Judas would betray him. Jesus came knowing that Peter would deny him. Romans 5 and verse 6, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. When you didn't have the strength to do what God needed you to do, God did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. While we were sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. When you weren't looking for God, when you were rebelling against God, when you were the enemy of God, that's when... God sent His Son to pay the highest price. While we were still enemies, Romans 5 and verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Incredibly, Jesus, unlike us, was capable of forcing His offenders to bend to His will, but rather allowed Himself to be bent toward their deviant, broken, historic, unforgiving, unjust, destructive will. Wouldn't you have loved for the thing that the person did to you to be God just for a second? You know what? I'm done with you. Goodbye. Jesus is capable of doing that, capable of calling the angels down, capable of doing whatever you want to do, and yet he submits himself, he humbles himself, he gets as close as he can to his offender, and he does for them in their most defiant state what was necessary according to the holiness of God. He voluntarily takes our whole offense, it's called sin, becomes the worst of us. He who knew no sin became sin and pays our whole penalty. The wrath of God is poured out on him and he is executed, not by Romans, by me and by you. So when Jesus comes to the earth, he doesn't introduce himself as another God offering another religion. Same general idea, guys. Just a little better marketing. A couple cool, pithy statements. Same, same, same rhetoric, just a couple updates. That's not who Jesus was. He's saying, I, I, I'm saying something entirely different. I'm doing something entirely different. I'm communicating something entirely different because I'm offering something entirely different. This is the reason why in the Gospels it says again and again, the kingdom of heaven is like... Because you can't understand what it is, so it gives you something that it's like so you have some idea of what he's talking about. Hey, uh, okay, the kingdom of heaven is... Okay, it's like a field, right? Why? Because it's so new and so outside of your perspective that if he told you exactly what it is, you'd be like, what? That's how different God's way is than our way. That's why when Jesus says, hey, y'all have heard it said... Let let, let me take some of y'all's old religion. You've heard it said, but I tell you, it's not the same thing. The way that you have been thinking about it and the way God thinks about it are not, it's not apples and oranges, y'all. It's like apples in a Ford F-150. This is the reason that Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. You wouldn't understand, Pilate. This is the reason that I say to you, if you can explain it, God didn't do it. This is the reason that I say to you, if it can be co-opted, if it shares the visions, values, or sounds eerily similar, this sounds very similar to that thing, then it has stopped being God's thing and started to be their thing. They don't mesh. They don't play well together. They don't fit together. Jesus didn't come to give you something updated. He came to give you something opposite. Likewise, the people who followed Jesus weren't simply better religious folks. (laughs) They weren't just a more moral version of the people who had been. That's why John 17, Jesus talking to God says, they, us, are not of this world in the same way that I'm not of this world. Christians aren't supposed to look like anyone else because they're not from the same place. It's the reason that in 1 John, the apostle says, do not love this world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are so different, you can't love them both at the same time. This is the reason in 2 Corinthians that Paul says to the church at Corinth, if anyone is in new Christ, he's a new creation. Something entirely unique, something entirely different. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to him and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is the reason in Psalms 1, it says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by a, by a river. That yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. What does God say? My people don't think like the world. My people don't listen to the world. They don't talk like the world. They don't process like the world. They don't love what the world loves. They don't act how the world acts. Why? Because I didn't. Because I didn't. Because I came and did something not like. I came and did something so profoundly different. The most powerful testimonies of the early church. Are you all still with me? Yes. The most powerful testimonies. There were three of them. The first was non-retaliation. Watch. A lot of people say the church grew in the face of persecution. That's not why the church grew. The church grew because it didn't retaliate to the persecution. Because just as Jesus in the book of Isaiah was a lamb led to the slaughter, didn't open his mouth, when the church is being persecuted for things that you and I believe, we don't retaliate. And people say, why aren't you retaliating? Everybody else would retaliate. What is this thing that you're doing, this forgiving thing that you're doing? The second thing was that we needed to love our neighbor. Non-retaliation, love for our neighbor. So in the old way, you see an old lady walking across the street at night, she's got a big old fat wallet hanging out of her... In the old way, we say, I'm not going to steal the wallet. Why? Well, because that is beneath me. Right? That would dishonor me. That's not virtuous. I don't need it. Making it about who? Me. In the Christian way, I don't steal the wallet for her. Does that have anything to do with me? You see, in the old way, beliefs were only about me. In the new way, Beliefs were about you. Can I make it worse for you? Non retaliation, love your neighbor, and love your enemies. What? Not in a guilt, innocence, fear, power, shame, honor culture. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not making myself vulnerable in any way, shape, or form. I, I'm not putting myself in a spot where they could hurt me, damage me, betray me, do anything to me. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. What do you mean love your enemies? You're supposed to kill your enemies. It's right for you to kill your enemies. It's safe for you to kill your enemies. It's proper for you to kill your enemies. And Jesus says, well, I came to my enemies and they killed me, and I'm asking you to do the same. Now, what do I say all this? Why do I say all this? It's a lot, yeah? I say all this so that you understand that to talk about biblical forgiveness to anyone outside of the faith is like speaking a different language. Why? Because it is. Because it is. Forgiveness is foolishness to anyone outside of the Christian faith. And I mean that historically, philosophically, ideologically, and culturally. Costly grace is foolishness to those who haven't received it. Secondly, you are never gonna have enough strength To offer forgiveness outside of a supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit. This is the reason that I said to you that forgiveness has to be vertical before it can become horizontal. That person that you can't forgive, I totally get it. Culturally, you're reinforced by it. Except God says, I want you to love your enemies, love your neighbor, don't retaliate, and be forgiving as you were forgiven. You say, how do I do that? I I don't want to do that. I don't know how to do it. And God says, you need to have an experience with me before you go and have an experience with them. What you're saying when you say, I cannot forgive them, is one of two things. Either I've heard from God and I won't do it, or I haven't heard from God yet. Our blueprint for forgiveness isn't how. How do I forgive? It's the wrong question. It's who. Who? In the same way that we have no place else to look in order to deal with our sin. We look to Jesus to deal with our sin, don't we? That's what the gospel is. I can't save myself. I can't get forgiveness by myself. I can't be moral enough, virtuous enough. God, you are virtuous. You are moral. You are good. Save me. In the same way, we have no one else to look for to deal with our sin than Jesus. I have no one else to look toward than Jesus, not just to deal with my sin, but to deal with your sin, and its effect on me. I come to Jesus in faith for my forgiveness, and I go to Jesus in faith to try to forgive you. That's how the Bible teaches it. Ephesians 4, forgive one another as God in Christ forgives you. Now, if I'm honest with you, the first time I read that, do you know what I'm emphasizing? I'm emphasizing you. You're forgiven. That's the wrong place to emphasize. You know what the correct place to emphasize it is? As. Forgive them. How? As. As you are forgiven. Yeah, but look at the news. Look at the history. Look at the culture. Look at the, look, 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 look. No, 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 I get it. I get it. Look at Jesus. Ephesians 4, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Last week we said, in order for you to be a forgiving person, you need to have a vertical experience before you have a horizontal one. In order for your heart to be warmed to be a forgiving person, you need to stop worrying about how and start looking at who. I go to God first and I say, God, this isn't working. And you know what he's always going to say? Look at my son. And Spend some time and look at the personal work of Jesus. Spend some time and receive the grace of God. Spend some time and understand how forgiving you are. Turn off the news. Get off social media. Stop listening to other voices. Don't sit in the seat of scorners. I'm telling you what you're going to get. Look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, in the same way you depended on him for your sins, depend on him for theirs. Let's pray. God, we love you today, and God, these are difficult things, and it's hard to pull apart because it's really about our identity and our beliefs and our worship. I know it's a lot today. It's a mouthful to say, and it's even more of a mouthful to hear, but the reality of it is, God, if we look to anyone but you, we won't understand how forgiven we are, and we won't have any propensity, compulsion, desire or willingness to be forgiving. Everybody in this room is forgiven by you through the person and work of Jesus. Everyone, everybody in this room, while we were weak, while we were sinful, while we were enemies of you, you got as close as you could to us, knowing what we would do, knowing how we would respond. And not just them, me. I respond you know how I respond you know who I am and you love me still you forgive me still and not just once to save me and make sure I go to heaven when I die you forgive me over and over and over your mercy is new every morning your grace is eternal and unconditional and never-ending Lord, I pray that you'll put us in the flow of your spirit. Put us in the stream of scripture. Speak to us. Show us the way. Point us to Jesus. For your glory. And for our joy. We love you and we thank you and we pray these things. In the name of our Savior and to you our forgiver. And all God's people said, amen and amen.